and welcome to the latest edition of the Forever Blue podcast, a podcast dedicated to all things Manchester City and sponsored by Howard Solicitors, who have offices through Greater Manchester and Cheshire. They specialise in areas of law that affect the individual, so it's likely that if you need some guidance or help, they'll have somebody to help you. You can call them on 0161 872 9999 or email law at howardsolicitors.com. Com. They have a website too, howardsolicitors.com. Really appreciative of their support. Without them, I wouldn't be doing the podcast. So thanks, guys. Uh, now, I have three people, of course, in the lineup for today's podcast. As usual, we have two fans, uh, two fans who've been part of the Forever Blue gang for a long time now and supported me wonderfully through good and bad times, mainly good. Um, and they are Harlan, who I first got to know, know on my uh, uh, YouTube vlogs, which are back as well this season, and I've never shook him off. He's still here and uh, and he's contributing <laughs> tonight as well. So nice to see you, Harlan. And now, of course, that we have signed um, Erling Harland, um, everybody will be saying you're the well, they'll be getting confused basically when I'm saying Harlan, what do you think of that? They'll think, what, what are they asking? Is Erling Harland on the program? So um, <laughs> that, that's what you're stuck with now. I mean, previously being compared to uh, Gary Neville. There you go, you see. I'll swap Ireland for Neville any day of the weekend. I'm happy with Ireland. Absolutely. Do. You have to grow your hair a bit longer. Um, I had it on that last year, didn't I? I have to yeah, dig it, grow it again and put a, put an headband in it or something or tie it up in a, in a top knot. There we go. We'll do that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we've also got with us Tony. Um, Tony from Hoplink Marketing, who's uh, sponsored me and supported me in the past and is very much part of the Forever Blue team as well. Uh, and always a pleasure to have Tony with us. We're in his city top as well tonight. We record it via Zoom so I can see him. Not all of it appears on uh, YouTube, uh, though you might see a little bit of my special guest, who is a former Manchester City player, of course, but also a former West Ham United striker, which is probably actually where he's best known from. But he also played for Rochdale and had, had a great career. He's now got a daughter who's even more famous than him. Uh, Kate, who plays for England's uh, women cricketers. So he's been completely overshadowed by his offspring. Once he was the kingpin in his family and he was the famous one. And now he's just me dad who used to play football. And that man is David Cross. David, thanks for joining us. Really appreciate it. OK, no problem. What's it like being the father of Kate Cross then? Well, we're not 100% certain I am her father. She does look a bit <laughs> like me, but uh, my wife can says definitely I am the father so I'll take a bit of credit um yes yeah, she's yeah she's had a a decent career so far um ups and downs a lot of ups and downs a lot of downs as well um with mental health problems uh which she's kind of overcome and come out the other side but you know that is never far away either I don't think when you're a top level sports person so um we just have to keep an eye on her but yeah, it's it's good to be able to go and watch Kate play, play for England. Yeah, you must be very proud. Um, uh, from your footballing career perspective, uh, you only played a relatively short spent spell at City. How do you look oh. back on that time? Uh, well, it was dif- it was difficult for me because I wanted to. I mean, I was thirty one when I signed for City. Um, I'd been leading goal scorer in the country the season before with West Ham. I got 34 goals and got the golden boot. So it was pretty obvious I could get a move. I wanted, I'd always wanted to come home because I'm from Haywood. Um, I'd always wanted to come home at the end of my career. And to be got to be given the chance to come to City was brilliant. I mean, I just, you know, I couldn't believe that uh, 
that John Bond was interested in me. Um, but of course, because I'd scored goals and there was a West Ham connection with, with John Bond, obviously. Um, but it just didn't work out for me. I, I had, I think on day two of pre-season training, uh, Kevin Bond, who was the clumsiest football I've ever come across. Good lad, good lad, Kevin, but a, such a clumsy devil. He booted me, toe-ended me on my ankle on day two of pre-season training. And at first that didn't seem like a bad injury, but over in the next two, three days, the, the bruising from the ankle completely stiffened up my Achilles tendon. And basically for the season I was at City, I was never, never fit. Um, certainly by Christmas, I was getting fitter the ankle was still in a bad way. It was just so stiff. I could barely, um, I couldn't stretch it. Uh, I mean, you know where the Achilles tendon is, don't you? The bit at the back of your heel. Um, and it was just a massive uh, problem for me. And I was just so disappointed that I couldn't show City's fans what I actually could do. Um, you know, the I did score goals in the short period I was there, but I was so disappointed that, having come home at the end of my, towards the end of my career anyway, um, to a, a club that I, you know, I was honoured to play for because obviously I'm a Hayward lad, so Manchester, you know, is a big connection. Um, I was just so disappointed it didn't work out for me. I mean, obviously that that is a, a very sad story, but you had great times at West Ham United and you had actually a, a very good career, didn't you? Uh, yeah, I mean, to say when I started, I, I left school when I was 18. I did my A-levels, left school, and the very day I left school, uh, which was a December, I, I left at Christmas time. And um, I just, I'd been training with Rochdale and playing for Rochdale for the A-team and the reserves. Um, but I was just surprised that they actually offered me a contract. I, I just left school and was just going to get a job because I was fed up of, um, I just fed up of studying. I, thought of going to university but um i just thought it's probably not for me and i was surprised that rochdale offered to sign me as a professional footballer i didn't realize that you know they considered i was going to be good enough so starting at rochdale as an 18 year old and just coming straight into the professional ranks i didn't you know i wasn't an apprentice i just came straight into the first team squad um i had no idea that i I was going to be good enough to certainly to play at the top level. And by top level, I mean, as a professional playing for Rochdale, you know, that would have been my dream at one time thinking if I could play for Rochdale's first team and, 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 and score some goals, um, that would be brilliant. But I'm really looking back after my career had finished, you know, looking back and knowing that I'd played that 600 games and scored 250 at senior goals, you know, they, it was just a surprise for me, having started where I did start. Um, the, the ironic thing was that as a kid, I'd never played as a striker. I was a right winger. Uh, and it was only when I signed for Rochdale that the manager saw me six foot two and stuck me up front. I'd never played up front before. So I had to learn how to play as a striker. Um, and in the end, it, you know, that was, that was my role as a goal scorer. When you look back on your career now, I know some footballers will, will have treated it purely as a profession, so therefore uh, their allegiances are just 
you know, former professional clubs that they played for. Do you look back with any affection on the clubs that you played for? I'm assuming that West, you would consider yourself to be a, a hammer, a West Ham player because of your longevity there. Yeah, you're spot on. I mean, I had five seasons at West Ham. Um, I really enjoyed my time at Rochdale. I mean, I learned the job. You know, yeah, I was playing with professional players, you know, third division players who knew the game. And I'm a kid, like, of 18, having no idea, really, what, even though I, was, I knew I was a good footballer, but I didn't know I was good enough to be a professional. But um, after Rochdale and started scoring goals and then Norwich City signed me and, and Norwich City straight away, six months after I signed for them, we got promoted to the first division from the second division. So having left Rochdale in October, playing in the third division and wondering if I was still, whether I was going to be good enough, six months later, I'm playing in the first division for Norwich City, playing against Liverpool and Man City, Man United. Um, you know, and it was like, just so quickly did I learn. I had to learn because if I, if I didn't, you know, I would have been out on the ear fairly sharpish so my time at Norwich was a massive learning curve Ron Saunders was our manager who obviously later on became City's manager um, and Ron Saunders was a former striker himself so he taught me the game he really taught me that he taught me the the dirty bits you know the horrible bits the leaving your foot in making sure that you know the center half you were playing against didn't want to play against you again because of what you'd done to him so I did learn all that kind of stuff off off Ron Saunders, um, and then I moved on to Coventry, then to West Brom, and then West Ham. But as you say, West Ham would be probably the biggest club in my career in terms of what I did, because I, I think I played I played 220 games for West Ham and, and scored, I actually got 99 goals. Um, just didn't get the 100th goal on the last game. But um, yeah, that you know, 200 games, and, and 99 goals was was a big thing for me. And you know, everyone always said that strikers, a good strike would get a goal every three games. So if you're playing 42 games in the season, you can get 15 or 16 goals. That would be good. Um, but to get a goal almost every two games for West Ham really defined my career. And because we won the FA Cup um, in 1980 when I was playing for West Ham, again, that team is still revered by the West Ham fans, that 1980 team. Because, I mean, it was iconic West Ham players, you know, Billy Bonds, Trevor Brookin, Alan Devonshire, Phil Parks in goal. You know, it was a really good side. And I was just lucky to be a part of that team. But the main reason that I got all the goals for West Ham in that team was because of the creative players who were in there, just giving me chances to score. When you sit there now with your pipe and slippers and tell your son and your cricketing daughter, Kate, about your career, do you mention City? I mean, you know, did that, does that frustrating season mean that they're just a sort of addendum at the end of your career or do you still look on that time affectionately? No, it was so difficult because, it, I mean, I don't think I'm going to be out, out of order here saying this, but when I arrived at City, my first uh, the first lad who, who I bumped into as, as I walked in the door was Asa, uh, who was a pal anyway, because uh, you know I'd known Asa through through playing against him, but through Lencantello was a big pal of of, of Asa's from their West Brom days, and and I knew Asa, and he just 
as I walked through the door, he said, oh, Christ, he said, what have you come here for? I said, oh, what, what, what do you mean? What, what? He said, it's just not right. The club's not right. I said, what do you mean it's not right? He said, well, you'll find out. And, and I did find out. It, it was like there were two, two different camps. There was the city lads, you know, Joe, um, uh, Acer himself, uh, Dennis Chua, you know, the, the, the proper city players. And then you'd got the kind of Norwich lads that John Bond had brought in. And there was a definite rift between those two camps. And I actually slotted into the city lads because even though I had played for Norwich years earlier, I knew this, you know, I knew the older lads better than I knew the Norwich lads and so I became part of the city kind of group if you like but there were two definite camps and it, it didn't work you know and that season was the season obviously that we went down you know the David Pleat game at the end of the season um, and it was a difficult club to come into just at that time I, I, I did feel that the, the proper Man City players kind of resented John Bond's attachment to Norwich and the fact that he brought all those players in um, from, from his ex-club. Um, so it was a difficult time to come to a club. The injury I got at the start of the season, I know it sounds like I'm making excuses, but you know, I, I had to be fit. I was a player who I wasn't the most skillful. I knew what I was. I was a goal scorer who didn't mind getting hurt in the penalty area to score a goal. But I had to be fit. I had to be at least... 90 to 100 percent fit to be out there running about making it difficult for defenders defending from the front as well which is a massive part of the game at West Ham making sure that the opposition's back four didn't come out with the ball you know I was the one who chased and harried defenders um, and I just couldn't do that in my time at City and it was so frustrating especially because it was my home you know if you like my hometown club I'm from Haywood so Manchester's 10 miles away um, a lot of my friends are City fans and it was just so disappointing and frustrating that I just couldn't show the City fans what I could actually do. All this time later, City have gone out and replaced you with Erling Haaland. Um, how does he match up to, to you, would you say? Well, I'm getting my hair done tomorrow uh, and put at the back and I, I did need to grow it a little bit longer, but um, I would say he's, uh, I mean... I hadn't seen him play before I saw the game yesterday uh, and I didn't see all of the game, but um, he looks he looks pretty good, doesn't he? He looks as though he's possibly what they've been missing since uh, since Aguero left. Obviously, you say he didn't watch a lot, you know, all the game yesterday, but it was West Ham against City. Um, yeah. Was that, is that a game that's a particular special one for you? Do you is that a, a result you would be keen to find out um not particularly i mean crikey it's 40 years ago isn't it since i left city never mind west ham um west ham was my club not that obviously because you know they're a cockney team they're east end of london and, and i'm a manchester lad. um so it does seem strange but the affinity with west ham because that team from 1980s 1981-82, um, we still get together quite a lot. So, you know, that is probably the club I'm most um, attached to. But I have no great, you know, I, I like football. I love watching football. I, and I mean, since City have had the money um, and got such good players. And I mean, 
people complain, don't they, about, you know, oh, well, City wouldn't be where they were if they hadn't had, had all that money piled into them. But they've bought so well, you know, they, they haven't wasted any of that money. They've bought well. They've got good players who play the game the right way. And, it, you know, it's been brilliant to watch City over the last 10, 12, 15 years, whatever it is, since, uh, since the owners took, took over. Have you ever needed a reminder, Harlan, of how far this club have come? And this is no insult to David, but listening to him speaking and listening to the era that he played in and looking at the glorious football that we're seeing now, um, this is a perfect reminder, isn't it? No, it is. It is, Ian. And I think, I think you know, it's, thank you, David, for the insight as well. I think it's, you know, for Peter, I mean, I'm 29 next, one year from 30 and throw me a big do. Big blue do, big forever blue do. I want um, no, but of course, you know I'm I'm coming towards thirty now. But especially people that are younger than me now that have become quite stat obsessed and only focus on what happens on computer games and only really focus on the big players. Um, not that you weren't a big player, but the big players now. I mean, they don't genuinely or generally go back and look at the history of Manchester City, West Ham clubs. You were talking about West Brom, Norwich. I was obsessed from a very young age with sticker books, always knew me teams, always knew me players. When we played a club at home or away, always knew what the opposition looked like. Um, it always paid to be informed because it made you enjoy the game more. Um, I think we can all agree that we all watch match of the day and, and, and I know Ian doesn't usually watch other teams too much, but I, I like to watch other teams during a season so that when it comes to us playing them, I know what to expect from certain players, especially imports and stuff like that. Going back to City, yeah, I think to be reminded of what eras that have been were like and to be reminded what times were like before footballers became uh, wrapped in cotton wool, if that's the right term, David, um, it is interesting. And I think for City fans especially to, to, to see where we are now and to still know that, that times were like that then and to understand the actual realisation that once upon a time, and I think since your era, David, and you've told me this, Ian, before, the club has been through maybe three or four different patches where things could have got very, 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 very difficult. To see where we are now and see the players we're bringing in now, some of which probably relate back to players we had then in a different era, um, is pretty special, yeah. And I, I never want to lose sight of what's been before but I am very, very thankful for what we've got now. But I do hold on to the past and I do enjoy thinking back to it, even in my time. And, and I don't know if you would remember uh, the, the era of David, Tony. I suspect you were probably too young, but what we do remember is City playing at Upton Park um, and playing against West Ham down many, many years and always finding it difficult to play West Ham, who always have a very, very good team. I love that era that David played in. Obviously, I saw every game that David played for City as well because that's how old I am. But um, so I, I've, I've sort of lived through that. But going to West Ham yesterday, and whilst it was only a 2-0 result and it was 1-0 from a penalty... It felt a very comfortable victory. It felt, um, you know, as if City were playing at probably two-thirds tempo. And I'm never going to take that for granted. You know, I sat there and enjoyed it and smiled and and thought, you know, this how lucky am I? And this will not last forever. Or at least I keep telling myself it won't last forever. But when you were sitting watching that, Tony, were you thinking back to previous, you know, City games at West Ham, different different eras and 
different situations and counting your blessings, or were you just seeing it as three points to get another Premier League title campaign underway? Um, I was enjoying the moment, to be honest. Um, wasn't really contemplating uh, times gone by. I think that as fans, we're lucky in terms of where we are. However, I'm very aware of the fact that nothing lasts forever. And I think it's all down to expectations. So I'm of the generation slightly before uh, myself, really, where I still expect to, you know, if we get a draw, it's a bonus. If we get a win, I'm even, I'm still ecstatic. I'm still expecting teams to put us to the sword, even when we're, you know, 12 points clear, getting 100 points at the end of the season, etc. I'm still going into games thinking, oh, this is going to be tough because that's the, the pessimist in me and uh, kind of that typical city mentality that I was raised on uh, and constantly have. Whereas some of the fans that Harlem was speaking about there, I'd love to have their positivity in the sense that we can go away to Barcelona, Real Madrid in the Champions League, for example, and have that confidence that we're City, we're going to win. But unfortunately, um, every game I do kind of think, well, this is going to be a tough one. Um, and I think it is for us because everyone wants to do well against the champions. So I don't think we do have easy games, regardless of who we've got. And yesterday, for me, the nerves were more about the players, how they're adapting, because it is, yes, we've got a lot of the same players, but I think the squad's had quite a bit of a shake-up more so than it has in other pre-seasons. Um, and it was just interesting to see how they're kind of coming together, um, how it's going to pan out, because, you know, I know you spoke about this the other week, but in terms of transfers and stuff like that, I'm concerned going forward for the season. So I think that we can't afford any slip-ups, um, which is where my nerves always kick in, because... I know as soon as we slip up, one of the other ones out there, notably Liverpool, will probably look to, you know, push on, etc. Um, and, yeah, put us to the sword a little bit. I was talking in a moment or two about the, the way that City have got to adapt the style now under Erling Haaland. But, David, uh, you know, you've got that position that you're in because you don't feel, uh, to me, I hope I'm not wrong in saying this, quite as emotionally attached to City as we are. So you're able to look at it from that little bit more of a step back. How do you perceive City these days as a club? Well, you, yeah, you're right. I was never a City fan when I was a little boy. You know, Newcastle United were my, uh, were my club because uh, my mum and dad are from Newcastle, the Geordies. So uh, that was my connection as a, as a little boy uh, and a teenager growing up that Newcastle was my team, so it wasn't City, it wasn't United, it wasn't Bolton or Bury. I, I was a Newcastle United fan, so I can look at it from the other sides. But listening to Tony and Harlan, clearly the two intelligent lads who see football the correct way, um, you know, thankful that they've got what they've got now with those fantastic players that, that are out there, but also that little bit of pessimism. Um, which I can understand because when you are the best team, everyone wants to beat you. Everyone will love City to come a cropper because everybody who doesn't support City will be so well, they wouldn't be where they were if they hadn't had all that, that Saudi money coming in. Um, and there's a jealousy, I think, about City at the moment, which those two young lads who were on um, earlier, Tony and Harlan, you know, quite clearly aware of you will remember probably what it was like with City I mean before I was there with Colin Bell um, you know that team with Belly and uh, Doyley and um, Tommy Booth you know that City team 
um, 68, was it 68 when they won the championship? No, 68, yeah. they got promoted. 67, they got promoted from the second division in, in 68. Um, I think they won the, uh, won the first, first division. division. Yeah. And then there was the slide down and then it became slightly worse. But most City fans remember what it was like before they were what they are now. And, you know, make the most of it, guys, because, you know, the, the, it is a fantastic team to watch. Like I said earlier, I love watching football. I love watching good football um, and City play good football. They play it the right way. I don't know if you're aware of the fact that Terry Venables wrote a book oh, 30 years ago. And, I, and I, when I got into coaching, I read Terry, ben Terry Venables' book because I wanted to know more about coaching rather than the playing side of the game. And there's a quote in his book, at this foreword of the book, and it's a quote by Dave Sexton. Um, and the quote is, football is a forward thinking forward passing forward moving game and terry venables coached his teams based on that theory and city play that way um there's a lot of football now that i see where there's so much backwards and sideways passing <clears throat> you know from the halfway line where years ago perhaps when ian was watching rather than you two younger lads if someone was on the halfway line and they passed it backwards, the crowd would go mad. Everyone just wanted the ball to go forward, knocked up into the box, out wide, crossed into the box and see action at both ends. That's what fans wanted. Now, it's different now. There's a lot of passing, interpassing without going forward, trying to just make sure that you can uh, just make sure that you can perhaps ease a defender out of a situation and a position so that one of your forwards can make a run and get into it. And I think fans have got to be a lot more patient now with the football uh, than when it was when I played, because when I played, there was only one way it went. The goalkeeper had the ball and he booted it up as far as he could. Someone like me to head it onwards or head it down, secure possession and then get the ball into the box. And that was what the game was like then. Um, but as I was saying earlier, just, the two young lads there, Harlan and Tony, are looking at it the right way. Um, you know, don't ever rest on your laurels. It might not be like this in five years' time, um, but while it is, enjoy it. What you said from Terry Venables is very apt because I wasn't a footballer, uh, but I did play a little bit of badminton when I was younger and I was reasonably good and coached by an England international. And what I learned, the key thing I learned from him was always play on your toes, on the front foot, always attack the shuttle, always go towards it and not back from it. And yeah. I guess that's what you're talking about, really, in very simple terms in football, isn't it? Yeah, I mean... What did you do if, I mean, the two lads and yourself, if you ever played football at all, there was only one thing on your mind, was to score a goal. You can't score a goal if you're 100 yards from their goals, so you've got to get it forward. So you get it forward, and if you get it up to the striker and miss four of their players out, then you've, you've done something because you've turned their midfield around. If you can slide it, to your right winger who's skillful and can beat a fullback and he can cross it. It was always to me about when I was a little lad playing football and learning football and then becoming a pro, get the ball forward, get the ball forward because their goals are at that end. Your goals are behind you. So get it up there, get it in the box, get someone big and ugly like that idiot cross up front 
to head it in and get hurt scoring a goal. And that was what it was all about for me. Um, I just wanted the ball to be played forward into the box so that I could get on the end of it, get hurt. I didn't mind getting hurt to score a goal, um, which obviously you can see by looking at my face. Um, it didn't matter to me to get kicked in the head or collisions in the head. It didn't worry me just so long as I could get on the end of it and either score or make an attempt to score and create a chance for somebody else. The game was there then about that. It has changed. The game has changed now. There's a lot more, it's a lot more, uh, you know, careful passing backwards, sideways. I do get frustrated sometimes when I see the way that pass, you know, that sometimes you'll see 15 passes in your own half. That would never have happened in our day because the fans wouldn't have accepted it. Uh, so the game has changed and you've got to accept that. But I mean, it's a, this is a City podcast. So, you know, City are a fantastic team to watch. And going right back to what I said before about not being a City fan, but I still enjoy watching good football. I don't care who it is. I don't care if it's United or if it's City, if it's on TV and I can watch good, exciting, skillful football, then that's what fans want to see. Well, let me ask a fanalist, Harlan, then, about the, the way that City's game, David's talking about a big leap forward from the era when he played, but <laughs> even within the Pep era, we're now on the verge of seeing a, a complete transformation of tactics, are we not? How, how would you analyse that? Yeah, Ian, and I, I, I just I think there's still them kinds of teams. Um, everybody now tries to play it from the back, but I believe that some teams try and imitate something they're not, and that's when they get caught out. So there's still teams. I was watching Match of the Day last night, actually, from, from Saturday. I caught up on it last night, and I haven't watched Match of the Day too yet. But I was just sat there to myself watching it, thinking, it's actually a really good league now, isn't it? Like, and what I mean by that, it's always been a good league, the Premier League, but I just thought it's actually a really good league. Now, look at, you know, the Notts Forest have brought in good, um, skillful, young, fresh players with agility and skill. Everyone's got a number 10. Uh, teams try and play a false nine now. The managers are fresh-minded. They try and uh, adapt to different philosophies that they've lost games against. And... Just players now are, are younger, not not in an offensive way at all, David, towards you or anybody else that I've spoken to on the podcast, but the game's quicker. The players are fitter because of the sports science and physiological adaptations of how sport has gone in general. And the way that teams recruit now means that they're no longer are able to just tell these kinds of players to play one way and, and play a a more direct route one brand of football. Um, and I mean, I was at the, obviously I said I was at, I was at, I was co-commentating on the Bolton game at the weekend against Wickham Wanderers. So obviously you don't know, David, I, I, I commentate and co-commentate up at Bolton Wanderers and they played Wickham Wanderers at the weekend and Gareth Ainsworth is one of the, the, the longest serving managers in the, in the EFL and he's a really pleasant person, is quite a, a um, an expressive person, doesn't really care what people think, the way he dresses and that kind of thing. And he's a free spirit. Um, his side don't play as a free spirit side, though, in a, in a weird kind of way. They are a very old school, sometimes one-dimensional, direct football inside that play up to a big man in Sam Vaux. Um, At the weekend, 
he knew how Bolton played last year against them, and they won 2-0 against Bolton at the Uniball. Now, he, he came this season with his team and tried to play football in the first half, and they got caught out, and they were ran ragged by Bolton because a side came to Bolton and tried to imitate playing lovely possession-based progressive football against a side that are, in my opinion, wonderful at playing it in Bolton, and got caught out because they didn't know what they were doing. Um, when he reverted back in the second half to playing direct the Wickham way, they had a 10-minute period where they looked like they were on top, but then Bolton managed the, to get hold of them again. And the, the point whilst, I'm trying to make is... Yeah, the, whilst that's interesting, and, I, and I'm, I'm not knocking you for saying that, let me take this now to a City perspective. Um, City have, have played, as David has, has, has mentioned, without necessarily directly referring to City, you know, a possession-based game where you can keep the ball a lot in your own half and, and build up slowly and then look for slick passing and lots of movement in the attacking final third every now and again to create a goal, and it could be for any player. I mean, Riyad Mahrez was a top scorer last year. It could have been Raheem Sterling. It could have been anybody, really, because there, isn't, there wasn't a focal point. City have now, and obviously, we've, we've only seen one proper game in the Premier League, but the goal that was scored, whilst I wouldn't say it was route one, it was a ball from the halfway line, practically, into the path of a running striker, so it was a, almost a counter-attacking type of goal. Does that mean that City have adapted? And will the, and to go back to your story about Wickham against Bolton Wanderers, does that mean that teams now are expecting, who were expecting City to play a different way, might be caught out by the new way that City play? Yeah, I think, I think Haaland gives us that option. But I think you asked us all the question last year. Or I think the final podcast that I was on with, I think it was Paul... You said to me, um, you know, Rodney was on as well, if you remember. Um, what do you what do you know about Haaland now at this last stage before we potentially sign him? And are you excited about him? And I think I mentioned something along the lines of he's not just a number nine. He's quick, he's sharp, he will drift out wide, he will keep teams on their toes. They could they could work all week on trying to mark Haaland out of the game, um, work on trying to do what They've always done and stopped the number nine playing football. You're not going to do that with him. You're not going to do that with him. He looks... I, I remember Yaya Torre being called sluggish by City fans. There was times in his first couple of seasons here where I thought, well, he looks slow, doesn't he? And he had this energy conservation where he just burst into these unbelievable lung-busting runs like the one against Villa for the fourth goal in that 4-0 win. And you... You just never know when players like that are going to surprise you. And that's why every team that plays against us this year, their defence are going to work so hard on not just one way of dealing with Haaland, but probably four or five different scenarios in training, just so that they're fully aware of what this guy can do. And they will have to adapt. And that's only going to help us because when they adapt, they're adapting under a, a coach that's, Obviously, not as good as Pep. Um, so they then could then suffer having changed their game plan to play us in the weeks going from that because they've gone out of their way of playing where we are so able to switch and, and change things up game by game. 
he, he's not gonna he's not limited us, has he, to what we can do. He's not like sent us backwards and made us play, as David was saying earlier on, up to a big Norwegian frontman that just grapples Van Dyke and pulls players' shirts. He's a lad that's got the best of both in his bones. And on, honestly, what a player. What a player. I was speaking earlier today on Sirius XM FC, which is the talk sport, if you like, of the United States, with Rodney Marsh, who uh, Alan just mentioned, Tony. And Rodney said to me, um, he was, he said, I've always been impressed by Erling Haaland. I've watched him a lot playing in the Bundesliga. Um, but what I was still shocked almost and surprised by his speed over five yards which we saw a little bit of yesterday. Um, were you surprised by anything you saw from Erling Haaland at West Ham? Um, oh, sorry, sorry. I thought you were talking to me. Sorry, Tony. Carry on. That's all right. Um, no, not really. I think um, for all that we've said today, I think one of the things we've got to bear in mind is we've not just gone out and bought a player because he's a good player. We've gone out and bought a player because he it's who Pep thinks is a Pep player. Um, so... We bought him knowing full well what his qualities are as a striker, what his abilities are in terms of being able to run um, and even in terms of being in the box and kind of having that technicality about him. So um, I don't think necessarily we'll be changing our style. I think we bought him to fit into our current style. Yes, he gives us an extra dimension up front in terms of being able to run and kind of um, have a central focal point. But how many times over the last couple of years have we sat on this podcast and said, why are we crossing the ball into the box like we have a big six-foot player? All our average, you know, our average height is this, that, and the other. We've complained about that. For, now we've actually got that kind of player. So are we then going to stop crossing the ball into the box? No, we're not. We're going to do it a little bit more now, if anything. So I think it was a good buy in terms of the club and what they've done. I think they've done a good bit of business there for how much it costs as well. Um, and I think it was another development in City. So... Over the last kind of five years, we've seen to have bought players with a plan in mind. Whereas I think in the early days of the takeover and kind of when we first came out, we bought people based on names because agents were throwing them at us and this, that, and the other. Whereas I just see this as another cog in the great machine that is Manchester City now. And it has been a well thought out transfer um, and one that Pep, you know, sealed and nobody's coming through that door without his seal of approval. Before I bring David back in again, Tony, let me ask you about. Bernardo Silva. I mean, before the game yesterday, there were a few fans at West Ham. Um, you know, I was obviously out and about doing my vlog, which you can follow on YouTube under the Forever Blue brand. And I was asking fans, uh, just talking to them generally, not always on camera. And a few said to me, be interesting to see if Bernardo plays today. If he doesn't play, that would be a bit of a sign of him leaving. Now, he didn't start the game. He came on. Um, I saw the press conference on Friday when Pep as you would imagine, danced around the issue. But you try to read a little bit between the lines and he keeps repeatedly saying that, you know, if, if a player wants to move on and he's unhappy, I will let him go. I don't want players who are unhappy. And a year ago, there was a lot of talk of Bernardo Silva leaving. So at the end of the game yesterday, after he'd come on, I also overheard people in the crowd around me, amateur body language experts saying, oh, he's just shot, thrown his shirt in the, into the crowd. And uh, Ruben Diaz went over and gave him a big hug. Was that his goodbye? I mean, I don't know which direction you want to take your comment in, Tony, but Bernardo Silva, 
you know, did you read all that in, in his body language? Do you think he's going to go? And if he did go, how much of a blow would it be? Or let's twist it the other way around and say, if he stays, how much of a bonus would it be? Um, a big bonus. Um, did I read all that? No. Do I buy in? I'm slightly different. So I don't necessarily buy into the rumours and all the rest of it. Um, I stopped that years ago. I think there was, you know, that famous photo of if City bought everybody the link to in the squad photo, there's about 50 players in the background of that, you know, mocked up squad photo. Um, I don't really, until I see the kind of the, the dead certs in the wall like we did earlier on with Sterling, etc. Um, I don't buy into he's going. I hope he's not. I think it's going to be a massive loss for us. He's been so crucial for us over the years. Um, and I think it'll be a big mistake from the club to let him go at this stage without having to being able to find a replacement. And that's why I don't think he'll go. Uh, as I said earlier, I think we're a lot better at our transfers than letting a key player like that go without having anybody lined up or anybody already through the door. Um, we may have just made that mistake with uh, left back. Um, obviously, he went to Chelsea when we thought we had a done deal there. So I don't know if we're going to be panicking trying to get another left back now. But usually we won't sell unless we've got somebody uh, in mind as a replacement. You were around, David, albeit as a youngster, when Bellley and some of you were the sort of icons of, of City. I was speaking to John Bell, Colin's son today, who okay. told me that they're progressing with the statue of Colin, Franny and Mike, uh, which is going to be at the front of the stadium, and it'll be a more traditional um, statue than the, the ones that they've done of David Silva, uh, Sergio Aguero and, and Vincent Company. Um, but how... Big in the, you know, do you, do you think that sort of Bell and Summerby now have been completely eclipsed by what's going on at the club now? Oh, I don't think you could ever eclipse those three. I mean, they were brilliant players, weren't they? I, I mean, I was lucky enough to play my very first, my second game in the top level after Norwich City had got promoted. The second game of the season was at Nine Road against that team, against Bell, Summerby, Joe was in goal. Um, you know, that really top side um, of that era. And a funny story was, uh, I was due that day, I was, my job on Corners Against was to pick Summerby up because um, he was good in the air, Mike Summerby, even though he wasn't the tallest, but that was my job. And it was the first time my family had seen me play at the top level in the first division. Um, so my family were there watching the game and... On the corner kicks, Mike Summerby, and I've been warned by Graham Padden. I don't know if you remember Graham Padden at Norwich, who was a Manchester lad, Withenshaw boy, and he knew all about City because he was a City fan. And he said when we were playing, Graham was playing in the in this team for Norwich against City that night, and Graham said to us as we were travelling up, he said, oh, we've got to be careful about the City lads. They're all gangsters. They're all in Manchester, you know. They know all the Quality Street gang. We've got to be careful. So I'm thinking, I'm, bit, I'm like 20 years of age, a bit frightened, thinking, well, I hope I'm not going to get killed here if I scored a goal against City. Uh, anyway, I'm Mike Mike Summerby, and the first corner that City got, Mike Summerby looked at me and he said, what colour size are you? I said, you what? He said, what colour size are you? I don't know if I'm allowed to swear on this podcast, but you can imagine what I told him to do. He said, why are you swearing at me like that? I said, I've heard all about you, like gangsters, you bloody Quality Street gang. I know all about that. He said, no, he said, well, get the lads collar size. And then afterwards, my family said, what were you talking to Summerby about? 
I said, he asked me what color, color size I was. I said, I told him to clear off. And, and then my brother said, well, him and his mate have got a shirt shop. They, they, they've got a shop in Manchester and they sell shirts. I thought, oh, right. So I made a right idiot of myself with that. Um, but apparently a lad called Frank Roston, I don't know if you're aware of Frank Roston, but Frank Roston had a shop in Manchester and Summer Bay and him got together and they sold shirts. So I made a right dick of myself telling him to clear off when he asked me for my collar size. But, um, you know, going back to that era when you're saying, is it eclipsed? I don't think you can ever ever eclipse that, that because that was a fantastic time for Manchester City fans from a time where it wasn't money that bought them. They had good players, Bell, Summerby, all that crew in that team. Somebody, one of the lads, I don't know if it's Tony or Harland, Harland said about the fitness these days. And I'd never, ever tried to suggest that it, the football was better in our day. It might have been a better spectacle in terms of physicality, in terms of what you could do on the field, which you could get away with, which fans love to see. Fans love to see someone getting tackled and whacked and battered and getting up and carrying on. Um, now, the physicality and the fitness and the technicality is so much better than it was in our day, as I think it was, Tony, it might have been Harlan said, about you know the diet and the sports science. So it, it is a much better game now than it was then, but it was different. And I don't think you can compare the Colin Bell era with the era now. It's, it was so different. Um, and I just can't, again, going back to what I said right at the start, I'm not really a, a fan of any particular club. So I can enjoy everything. I can enjoy watching good games of football, whoever it is. Um, I think most people who played for Manchester City would have a slight bias against United. So I was pleased if they get turned over. Um, but I just enjoy watching football. And Manchester City play fantastic football. They've got brilliant players. One question I should ask, or meant to ask, as we we're talking about Haaland up front, how tall is he? Is he, what, 6'3", six, 6'4"? Six, he must be about that. I've not got the measurements in front of me, but yeah. 6'5", six, six, had another one, yeah, 6'5", yeah. yeah. Yeah, that makes sense, looking at him. But would it be fair to say, guys, that you haven't had a proper focal number nine since Aguero left? Yeah, yeah. that's fair. I, 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 he reminds me more of a an Aguero-Jekyll hybrid. Yeah, sure. You know I, I mean? That Jekyll was good, wasn't he? He'd be the last one you had, wouldn't he, of that kind of big guy. I mean, he wasn't quick, Jekyll, was he? He wasn't as quick as Haaland is. But um, I, I take everything on board about what you say about, you know, the first, we always used to say that about pace. The first five yards is the most important in a football player. Um, If you can get away with five yards. I mean, I was quick over 50 yards. I was quick over 30 yards, but five yards, probably not quick enough uh, to get behind defenders. But, you know, if you've got that first five yards and you can, usually the small players do that, don't they? It's the little ones who, who kind of sharp little step bang that away um, so to get a big guy like him who can you know do both uh, both aspects of being a number nine i.e you know can you head one in from uh, from 15 yards when there's a cross comes in which you probably haven't had for years have we since Zeko 
um, you know, Aguero would get across people, which is the key to scoring goals in the box and getting across the defender. But real height that he has, you know, he can do both. So, I mean, they're really exciting times for, for City um, as a team and for you supporters because, you know, you know that teams always want to beat you. They'll always want to beat you. Everyone will be smugly pleased if City lose. Um, but I just enjoy watching the good footballers. And for me, the best footballer I've seen over the last 25 years plays for City now. And he doesn't do anything particularly fancy. He doesn't do anything incredibly uh, technically good. He just does the simple things well, and he does it often. And I think you know who I'm talking about. Come on. It could be. There's so many talented players at City at the moment. I mean, Kevin De Bruyne is always the player that leaps out at me, but I'm, I'm, I'm sure that's not who you're talking about, is it not? Kevin De Bruyne is the one I'm talking about. He ah, does the right. simple things well. It For me, for being a number nine like I was, I thrived on the balls going into the box. He doesn't mess about. A suit, wherever he is, he knows if he puts it in the box, that's up to somebody else to get on the end of it. And that's I had a player like that at West Ham. Trevor Brooking, who, when I learned what he did, which was put early balls into the box, that's why I got a lot of goals for West Ham, because I read the script. Trevor sometimes could be facing the crowd in the, you know, in on the edge of the pitch, and he'd just cross the ball. And I always knew that he was, if he could possibly cross a ball, he would do. And I think that's what De Bruyne does. And I think he, Aguero thrived on that you know, making runs in the box because he knew De Bruyne would put it in the box because that's all the number nine wants, the ball into the, into the box. Put it in the box and then it's up to me to score and that's my job. Um, and De Bruyne does that so well. For me, he's the, been the best player over the last five or six years that I've seen. I'd love watching him play. I agree. Hey, I've you, got two, go on, go on, Harlan. I've got two you, questions you, to finish off the podcast, but go on. No worries. Have you seen the interview that Harlan did with Alan Shearer? Uh, some of it, yeah. Right, so the one, do you remember the, the bit where he mentioned that ex-manager that I call Ole because that's what we used to do to his Man United team? Um, uh, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, he was at Mulder. He had so, uh, he had uh, Erling Haaland at Mulder and he said the first time that he saw him and he went up to him, he said, you can't hit a ball. Like, you need to learn how to head a ball properly. And he had him on the training ground working on headers with the with the, with the the set-piece coach and every, everything else. Haaland is somebody now that scores a lot of headers, but you would always think he had that. So some players are born with some stuff, like Messi is. Uh, Ronaldo's uh, somebody that's developed skills. Messi's an ability-driven player who's born with it's innate. And Haaland is somebody that's clearly a hard worker, somebody that when he's told by a coach he needs to do something or adapt or learn something else to, to make himself better, he goes and does it. And you can see, all right, you need players one over the bar the other day, but the, the height he got on it, Roy Keane comparing him to Ronaldo in terms of the way he can, um, you know, turn that pace on, put them afterburners on, and, and get him behind over short um, short distances is phenomenal. But just before um, I forget, David, you mentioned then about um, that era not being surpassed, or that you would never want to overwrite that era, or something on them lines. I, I heard uh, the commentator yesterday and the co-commentator saying that can Haaland beat Aguero's goal-scoring record? Well, I'd like him to score a lot of goals and win us a lot of titles, but I would never want him to beat Aguero's record personally. I just wouldn't. I just wouldn't want him to do that. I'm sure Amy uh, Thewlis wouldn't want him to do that either. But um, and Alvarez is somebody that is likened to Aguero because of where he's come from. 
but I've watched him three times in a City shirt and he reminds me more of a, a Tevez as well. Like, I never remember Aguero pressing that intensely, but Alvarez is like a Rottweiler. Do you know what I mean? He's got that Paul Dickov kind of waspiness about him where he doesn't let the defender breathe. Um, and I think that him and Haaland working together, one doing one job, the other doing the other job, is going to be an absolute unbelievable um, acquisition as a double act and is going to bring us a lot of success. I think Tony disagreed with your uh, ambition to hold Haaland back from scoring as many goals as Aguero. Am I right, Tony? Yeah, um, look, a lot of City fans, you know, aren't ever going to forget Aguero anytime soon. Um, whether he's in the record books or not, he's going to be like the, you know, we were just talking about, Tory Bell, um, Cranny. Um, and Aguero is going to be the same when, you know, people are looking back down the years, you're going to be saying Silver, Company, Yaya, Aguero, you know, so, and he's already in the history books regardless. If Haaland surpasses Aguero, great, he's here for 10 years and he gets all those goals then good luck to him. Um, I can't wait to see it. Um, it doesn't bother me whose record it gets beat um, in that sense. I think that players make their own legendary status. Um, you know, like we were just about, uh, if you were talking about your West Ham days earlier, um, and, you know, for that FA Cup, that whole team is now in history. Yet, if it wasn't for that FA Cup, uh, would the fans look fondly over that team um, now? Probably not. And this is, you know, what makes the team. It's similar with City fans in terms of, you know, the 99 team. Um, we all idolise now in terms of uh, legendary status, a lot of those 99 players. But if we hadn't got promoted then, would we, we wouldn't. And that's why, you know, as I say, it doesn't make a difference to me in terms of uh, whose record gets beat or where. Um, I just like to see the football that gets played. And obviously we'll talk about them. Uh, in years to come if they're good enough and they have that sticking power. So, you know, we'll talk about De Bruyne in years to come, but will we talk about Sane, for example? Probably not. He didn't have that impact on us as a club, whereas certain players will come to a club and change it and stick in their you know, fans' minds. You've got your Zabaletas, for example, that, you know, we were saying earlier about getting getting gritty with the game and wanting to take the game by the scruff of the neck. That's why Zabur kind of endeared himself to fans so it's not necessarily who breaks what record or whatever. It's what they do on the pitch and what the fans get from them. If they see that heart on the pitch, then it doesn't matter what they do in the record box. It's all about that connection that they'll have. Three questions to finish then. And uh, the, the penultimate one is set up really by um, the fact that David's talked about his era and we, we often compare eras. So rather than talk about the merits of the old era and a newer one in terms of quality, when you were playing, David, um, and certainly when I was watching in, in those days, I would look at the whole of the top flight, let's call it the top flight because it wasn't the Premier League, and I would look at each club and go, they probably all got three great players in their team. And so whilst there might still be any eras of dominance, like Liverpool dominating, there yeah. were other very good teams in the league. And there were a lot less points, so there was a lot less domination by certain teams. So my question to all three of you, and this is obviously a harder one for Harlan and Tony to answer because you are tribal City fans. It might be slightly easier for David to answer. But was football back then better because there was a more even spread of talent? Uh, you know, I mean, we're City fans and we're lapping up the fact that we're top of the league and sweeping teams aside. That's the truth of, of what where we are at the moment. But there was an era when it was a lot more even. Do you think football was better for that or is football now better than when it was back then? 
David? Well, that, that's a difficult question. I mean, you've got to accept that. And I, I heard those two lads earlier talking about football and their ideal about the game. And I was interested to find that they were saying that, you know, they, they like to watch good stuff, good football. Um, and in those days when anyone could beat anybody, it, it was more of an even thing. It meant more people in terms of the whole country and the, all of the clubs. Everyone thought they had a chance. Whereas now you, realize, you really think that four teams can possibly win the Premier League. And those four teams are the teams you have to beat and everyone else is just there to survive and hope that they don't go down because if they go down, the money from the Premier League gets lost. Um, well, it's a difficult question, but you'd have to say that in the, it's a different game in those days, Ian. It, it was different. Um, I felt when I went out every Saturday, whoever I was playing against, we could beat that team whether I was at Norwich City, whether I was at Coventry or West Brom or West Ham or City itself, whoever we were playing, you'd think we could beat these. If, if we turn it on today, we can beat them. Um, and nowadays, I mean, City's fans should be lapping up what's there now because the players you've got, you know, the quality. Of, there are players on your bench who <clears throat> walk into every other team in the Premier League you know, and you've got that little backup there. And I think, I don't know if it was Tony or whether it was Harlan who said earlier on, make the most of it while you can, because you never know when it's going to finish. Um, you know, just enjoy it because going to watch your team every week must be like a dream to be able to watch that quality of football. Well, I'm not going to actually ask the other two because I know that as tribal fans, it's a very difficult one to answer that. So I'm just going to fit. Go on, Tony. You, you you want to say something? I just, well, I know it's a difficult one, but I kind of um, disagree because I think anybody can still beat anybody. And what I mean by that is, yes, we know kind of, um, I mean, taking Leicester aside from obviously when they won the Premier League, but um I still have that belief that some teams will come to us and put in such a big shift and come out and, you know, potentially win. Uh, we saw it last year of the season, last year at Villa, you know, that kind of when they were 2-0 up. Look around the stadium, fans were in that belief that we had lost it. And I think that there is a lot of teams that will come to the top teams like ourselves, Liverpool, etc., and pull off, you know, what they would see as a victory or a draw, etc., so whilst it's not as open that you will get, you know, your kind of your Brentford they're going on to win the Premier League after just being promoted like you could, you know, uh, in years gone by, I still think that the league has that competitiveness. And especially with those uh, mid to kind of top table teams, um, being able to get those results on any given day. And that's what all keeps that pessimism in me when we go, you know, to West Ham away, for example. I don't think it's necessarily a given that we've got, a league now where it's just about the top four. I think that there is a lot of good teams in there and on their day, you know, they can put any other team to the sword and, you know, we can sign and kind of see that with Fulham uh, when they played Liverpool uh, weekend as well. So um, I do think that we do have that competitiveness still. Um, and I do know that, for example, just going on what you were saying there, um, Mike, some of people will fight his corner to say that if he had what they have now, 
he would have had uh, more goals, more records. Everyone rings around this lot today were his exact words when we were talking about kind of the, the speed and how the games are today. Um, he still very much feels that uh, he gets sold, sold a proper when he uh, talked about in the history as if uh, he couldn't do it now. He uh, denies that and says that he definitely could do it now. Now you can chip in with a comment on that if you want, Harlan, but um, last question is to, to you and, and then David. Um, the, the headline of the question is uh, next game is Bournemouth and then a trip to Newcastle. And I just going forward now in the next couple of games, um, you know, what, what are your thoughts, Harlan? It's mad, really, because the, the two sides that one of these managers I'm going to mention, um, you've just mentioned, he's managed both. Um Eddie Howe. And the reason why I'm going to mention Eddie Howe is, is because he played in a Bournemouth side that was still relatively... Uh, he played in the Bournemouth side and then managed the Bournemouth side that were relatively one of the the kind of less footballing sides when he took over at Bournemouth. Um, I just want to look at something from a different angle, Ian, and I think David might maybe appreciate this view that if you look at a lot of managers now, that managing today's game, especially at the top level or, or in, in, in a very good football league and Premier League, a lot of the managers that are used to playing or played centre-half, old in midfield, that were deemed to be physical. Joey Barton, for example, at Bristol Rovers, they play nice football now. They actually want to play a possession-based style of football. And I mentioned before about Wickham, Gareth Ainsworth, who played as a, as a creative football player, actually has his side playing the more physical side. So it's like the managers that were players that played a certain brand of football that maybe only played it because they were demanded to play it that way, now almost want to do the opposite and experience football in a different kind of way because that was always their belief. So it's weird, really, um, from, from, from that angle. And I think that, that shows you that each manager or each person has a hankering for the other way of playing or the other way of managing to what they maybe were used to as a player. So I think the old era still lives within the new era and the new era potentially live within the old era, but we just didn't know about it, um, potentially. But I'm excited, Ian, about the season. I think we can win both games. Both games are winnable. Um, you mentioned before, and as I touched on with regards to Bolton as well, you, you're you going to get teams now that are going to try and catch us out, but we've got too much for them teams um, the reason why I mentioned it was because teams are going to try and be smart. They're going to try and come. They're going to try and play out of their skin and maybe even fall out of own philosophy, their own philosophy to try and catch us out. And we ain't going to fall for it. We've got too many things up our sleeve. Um, Newcastle's the toughest one. I expect us to beat Bournemouth at home and Haaland to maybe get a hat trick. I was asked the question, how many goals will he get in his first month? And I said seven. It's two down, five to go. If he gets a hat trick against uh, Bournemouth, it's only two more to go. So... I think it's realistic. Newcastle's a tough test, but we'll beat them as well. I'm confident. I think we're going to do really well this year. And I think Haaland's the missing ingredient for the Champions League. I genuinely, genuinely do. If we had him against Madrid, we'd have won it, I think. You say that though, Haaland. And I, on the flip side of that, when it when the teams do adapt for us and it does work for them, we don't have that plan B. And that's always been our sticking point, is that when teams do do well against us and they have adapted well and that they're sticking to the game plan and, you know, some teams will come just for that draw. We've seen it with Southampton in years gone by um, and it works for us. We don't necessarily seem to have that plan B. Now, you could argue that um, Harland gives us that plan B um, and I can see that point of view, but I think that is always our sticking point is that we rely on sometimes in moments of individual brilliance to 
get those results because we don't have the plan B and plan A isn't working. Thanks very much to Tony and Harlan for being great contributors tonight. Uh, it looks like uh, Tony actually wants to play. He's got a shirt on. He's got a ball. We can see him on uh, on Zoom. He's got his ball as well. So he, he could be could be playing at the weekend. So thanks to you two. Um, big thanks to Howard Solicitors, Stockport, Ashton and Cheshire, who specialise in family law. So if you're going through a separation or having problems with access to your children or with social services, then give them a call on 61872-9999 or email law at howardsolicitors.com. Final question then to you, David. You mentioned earlier on that as a kid, you were a Newcastle fan. Yeah. You also said, which obviously wasn't absolutely accurate, but I didn't pick it you up, that City are Saudi-backed. It's actually Newcastle that's Saudi-backed. City are... Yeah. Uh, and I know that it doesn't matter, and it, it, I'm just just saying. But City play Newcastle, and I just wonder, from your perspective as a boyhood Newcastle fan and a former City player, what you make of Newcastle these days, and whether you believe that in the short or little longer distance they might be, uh, you know, big challenges to City. I honestly don't know. I mean, my thing about Newcastle was when I was a kid. I mean. Once I became a professional footballer and played against Newcastle, all those fans that uh, I stood with on the uh, on the terrace at St James's Park as a kid were calling me a prick because I was playing against Newcastle at St James's Park. So uh, I mean, they were probably quite right in the uh, the recognition of what I was. But um, no, I've, the Newcastle thing for me was fifty years ago. Uh, you know. And, I just I'd like to go back to just what I think it was Harlan said about coaching and one of the things when I got into coaching that I learned after I played football after being a professional one of the things that I learned about coaches was that a lot of coaches went out with a philosophy on a Saturday of how they weren't going to lose and when I played it was how we were going to win and I think that's what Pep Guardiola does. He doesn't consider how they're going to lose that, that weekend. It's how we're going to win that game. And because he's got the players that can win a game, I don't think that you know the, his idea is never going to be a negative one. And I thought in my coaching career, which didn't last long, probably 10, 15 years, I met so many coaches who were negative in terms of how we're not going to lose? What? How? How we're going to cope with this team on Saturday that they can't beat us? As against, how we're going to win this match? And that's what, when I played under John Lyle at West Ham, John Bond at City, how we're going to win on Saturday? Not how are we not going to lose? So you know the the coaching is different now, but Pep, in some ways, is a very old school coach in terms of his philosophy about what his team are going to do in the next game great speaking to you david and i really appreciate your time um and of course we'll be back to another podcast uh, on sunday the day after the bournemouth game so um if you're a regular listener then make sure you subscribe it's free um, so just click the button that says subscribe and it'll just pop in your inbox. But thanks very much to everybody who's contributed tonight, everybody for listening. And if you only remember one thing from this podcast and nothing else, remember this, it's great to be a blue. <laughs>